0: This week's episode is brought to you by ISTE. At ISTE Live 23 on June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. Get inspired about teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. And then bring that joy back to your school. Register now at ISTE Conference org. Before we get started, a quick program note. This week's episode was recorded in front of a live audience last week down in Austin as part of the South by Southwest EDU conference. As you'll hear, we had a lively crowd turn up, and it was so great to be out and meet listeners in person. Thanks for everybody who came out. If you couldn't join us down there, we are happy to share the whole conversation with you. Here it is. Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, um, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and an editor at EdSurge, and we are today coming to you live from the South by Southwest EDU Festival in Austin, Texas. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for being here. Um, For this episode, we are jumping into learning science and the exciting and very changing world with some all-star experts who really know their neuroscience i i wish i could have had people in the green room with us they were dropping terms i didn't know and where the amygdala is it was amazing Um, we're gonna we're gonna make this accessible to 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 me and everyone in the audience but it's it's a great group up here Um, I really want to first, I'll introduce the guests, but then I'm going to just lead a conversation here, and then we're going to open it up to you. So I do hope you'll be thinking of questions to, um, to ask while we're all uh, here in person. Um, it's a privilege to be gathered. Our first guest is Barb Oakley, um, who is a professor of engineering at Oakland University University and honestly, she works at this intersection of, of translating the latest brain research into practical advice for educators. And she also teaches a blockbuster online course. And it's one of those things where, like, it's a free online course um, called Learning How to Learn. And I think it is literally one of the most watched or taken courses ever. Um, millions-plus students. Um, I asked all of our guests up here. I'm not going to get into everyone's bio fully, but I asked for a fun fact. Um, and for Barb, she told me that she met her husband at the South Pole Station in Antarctica, a research station, and she jokes that she literally had to go to the ends of the earth to find him. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Barb. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Um, next, we have Andrea Chiba who is a professor of cognitive science in the program of neuroscience at the University of California at San Diego. Um, She also co-directs there the Temporal Dynamics of Learning Center. And a fun fact is that she started her career as a high school math teacher before going to learn about all this neuroscience. (laughs) And all the way from Norway, we have Olav Shui. He is a consultant who's worked with universities and companies to advise them on how to take insights from learning science and and put it into their teaching and their their work. And he has written two books uh, on effective learning. One is called Learn Like a Pro. Another is Super Student. Fun fact about Olaf: He um, once assisted the magician David Copperfield (laughs) in helping a group of 40 people disappear on stage. (laughs) and he knows the trick so be nice to him okay let's do some learning I want to start with a question for Barb Um, I, I really want to get into the title of this session which is a golden age of learning science and what we can learn from it first off though I mean do you think it's true that we're in a golden age of learning science and if so why I'm so excited because, yes, we are in a golden age of neuroscience. She had said no. It would have been a big downer. But <laughs> Yeah, surprise. <laughs> I'm going to change my mind. No. Uh, but the fact is
1: that for literally thousands of years, we never really knew how the brain operated and how we actually learned. We've made best guesses. We've devised theories. But now we can see inside the brain. And so the theories we're developing and the insights that we're gaining are based on solid information, and so in the last decade, there has been, thanks to the work of Andrea and and to to researchers kind of all around the world, there's been just an enormous vault forward in understanding how we learn. the The challenge is getting that out through schools of education to teachers to help students.
0: So I want to go across the panel and ask a. About your latest insights, I'll start with you, Barb. The, what are you know of, of all the things that um, that you know about? What are some some what's what's something new and exciting from those findings you just addressed? That like if if educators know nothing else, they really should know this. They probably don't. Um, oh, oh, it's like oh, which child I know. should I pick? Uh, but
1: uh, I think uh, most people kind of in the know, are aware that retrieval practice, building those sets of neural links by pulling ideas from your own brain is important. But I think another area that's very important is that uh, when, for decades, educators have said, drill is killed. It's bad. Unfortunately, drill actually is how we learn music. How do we, how do we play musical instruments? How do we play sports? How do we learn a language? But somehow, especially in math, it's like, oh, no, no, can't do drill. But what that does is that throws away one of the brain's easiest ways of really understanding information, and that's through that basal ganglia procedural system. And interestingly... Right when, uh, in the 1970s, when uh, drill is kill, we stop doing that, that's like half of how we learn is making things habitually easy. And IQ scores started falling around the world, even within families. You can tell what kind of education they were getting in the 70s. You know, earlier, they were learning just fine. Uh, later, they weren't. So I think there's enormous breakthroughs taking place in involving just how to integrate some of these habitual tricks and tweaks because drill can lead to skill.
0: And just to be super clear about what drill is here, we're talking about like times tables, right? Like learning multiplication tables? What are some other right. examples? Because
1: So, for example, if you're learning times tables, it's not saying two times two is four a hundred times. It is integrating, interleaving. So you're practicing these times tables and you kind of know them intuitively. Somebody throws it at you and you, you can say it practically without thinking of it. When you can do times tables without thinking about it, then you can do fractions more easily, then you can do algebra more easily, and then you can do calculus more easily. But when it comes to language learning, for example, you're not just, you know, doing present tense, you're interleaving through this procedural drill, so students learn the patterns of present, uh, preterite, uh, imperfect, all these different tenses. Uh, When you're obviously doing sports, you're drilling different techniques. So that's kind of what I'm talking about.
0: And from watching your online course, it seems to me like what you're saying is that there's literally we're wired to once we drill enough and have that at the top of our head. Like I think people can probably in the room, like imagine when you think of your timetables, like, you know, when you think of, you know, eight times eight, like when you say eight times eight, like you're, a number comes to the mind in a way that it doesn't for bigger numbers, you know, 200 right. times three. It's only. like... Also like
1: solving a Rubik's Cube. You do it enough times and you know how to do it intuitively. You can't really explain it very easily. You can just do it intuitively. And a lot of that learning through that procedural basal ganglia system is is like that. And we want to help encourage that as well as the typical explanatory declarative learning.
0: If we had more time, I'd put you at the whiteboard to explain that yeah, that I can't even say it back. I'm going to butcher it. But the the part of the brain that then like moves it in into this like easy retrieve space. It's fascinating. It's pretty. Right. All right, Andrea, what are what are, what's, what's your favorite um, yeah, the, the thing we should know about the way the brain works that teachers should know that all of us should know?
2: Um, I think I'll give something that's more of an overview actually. Great. And I think teachers probably know this better than scientists, but now the science is meeting practicality. And that is that, one, there are huge individual differences in brain maturation. And so um, what you're good at now may not be what you're good at later. There's a disproportionality in the way that uh, development proceeds, and we have to recognize that. And brain development is protracted where the frontal cortex is still developing into the 30s. Um, And so there's hope. I'm on the flip side of that right now, so... mm. (laughs) But... (laughs) Anyway, um, I think that's really important to keep in mind. And the next thing is that the brain is dynamic and it's always trying to meet the demands of the outside world and the inside world. And that those two meet in similar brain structures. The idea that emotion and cognition are separate is just really passe. The truth is, is the very same brain circuits process both. And they flip the dynamics of the brain on a moment-to-moment basis. And so we can't expect um, people to be very, very uniform <laughs> in their processing, because it's just not the way the brain works. Can you give
0: a quick example of like, how that plays out in practice? Because I can picture it, I think. But...
2: Right, we all have those moments um, when we're trying to function optimally and we may not be fully regulated, like maybe right now if someone asked me someone's name and I felt a little pressured and couldn't remember it, I would know that name, but I would blank on it. And it could be that I'm just over my optimal peak of arousal. And what that does is it actually shuts down, you know, downregulates regulates your, your cortex a little bit for focused attention and functional learning. And upregulates it for quick, reactive thinking, and so you know you're always playing with this balance. So you want to kind of hit the sweet spot of learning for everyone.
0: That's great. No, it's and and so for teachers, like, how do you get to the sweet spot in that? How do you create an environment that does it?
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be slightly different for everyone, and that's the big challenge. And that's why I say that the neuroscience is starting to meet what teachers have always known. Like, I can do this, mm-hmm. and it doesn't generalize to every child. And so everyone's going to need something a little bit different. And so it's hard because you have a lot of people in your class and you kind of need to figure out at least what the sort of categories are and try to meet people where they are and actually prepare them with the skills to own their own learning so that they learn to self-regulate, so that they learn to understand their internal states and how they best function also.
0: It's another reason to get... To know your students, yeah, of many. Olaf, do uh, you want to jump in uh, yeah. with a yeah something we should all know from the, your learning and your research? So I think we've all heard and know about
3: long-term memory. What isn't spoken as much about is working memory, and. Um, <coughs> I think an understanding for working memory is helpful both for students and for teachers. So long-term memory you can think of as storage space, and you can store a lot there. I think the latest estimates from neuroscientists was that um, if you took all the books in the world that has ever been written and you were able to memorize all of it, you'd fill up a few percentage points of your long-term memory. It's just so much space there to store things. But then we have another memory in our brain, the working memory, which works differently and is involved in in thinking and learning as well. And the working memory is tiny compared to long-term memory. And it also differs from person to person. So some people can have a, a larger capacity in their working memory than others. And that has implications for how quickly they can turn around and think. And this has implications for a lot of the things that goes on in school. For example... There used to be this saying, and and maybe people still preach, that all students need to take notes at all time, that that's a hallmark, that's a sign that students are uh, learning. And if you're not taking notes, it's a bad thing. But actually, research is showing that if a student is already struggling a little bit in the classroom because the material is difficult, their working memory might be working at full capacity, And then if you push another task on the student, say, not only do you have to sit and listen intently and and, and think, you also have to take notes, it overwhelms their working memory and the learning goes down. So there are actually situations where it will be better to take fewer notes um, and that's because of working memory. And I think understanding these different parts of our brain is so powerful for students to understand themselves and to be able to make better choices in their own learnings. Um, so, yeah,
0: wow, and again it 's so differentiated then, like the different people sitting out there are going to be in different states of their or that have different capacity to to remember so, so for some people, taking notes is right and some not at that particular moment in any given time. Um, why does it always get more complicated the more I learn <laughs> so I, I want to stay with you for a minute, Olaf, and talk about. A lot of your work has to do with metacognition, which is basically helping people think about how they're thinking. The, the metacognition, think about thinking. Um, so what advice do you, and I know you kind of help a lot of people understand how to think better and improve their, their strategies for learning um, based on this. So what are some, you know, what's something there that people might not realize about their, meta, something else that, about metacognition that you often find yourself like helping people understand?
3: Yeah so metacognition is thinking about thinking it sort of goes one level up from our normal thinking so i might be you know grappling with ancient uh, greek history but metacognition will be thinking about how i'm thinking about learning that ancient Greek history. And when we're teaching students how to learn, we want to give them this toolkit of different things, retrieval practice, interleaving, different types of techniques. Metacognition comes on top of that and helps us select the right tool at the right time. It's a sort of reflection. And um, to some extent, we are all metacognitive, but some students are more metacognitive than others and through practice and training and activities in the classroom students can become more metacognitive and typically uh, effective learners they are metacognitive and in practice that means that they take a step back before they start learning to think about okay how should i approach this task what is the task what is success looks like what resources do i have available so you stop and th- think a little bit before you start and then during the task, you take a step back every now and then and you ask yourself, am I working in a smart way or is there something that is, um, is not working so well? Should I do some changes? Um, and this is something that um, teachers can also help induce with their students by asking them to reflect and think before they start a task. Rather than telling students, you know, you should do this, ask the student, how do you think you could go about this, what are your different options? And then it, which one do you think is the better one?
0: It does seem like if each student has these different, you know, um, availabilities of mind to process the learning, then helping them be the one making decision based on, deci- based on what they know about learning is probably a key part, I would guess. And so what, can you give a, a very specific thing that, that maybe any of us could, could, could reflect on as we're in a learning mode? Um, so, so I think to become more metacognitive, you
3: can think of learning as a three-step process, before, during, and after. And you can be a little bit metacognitive in each stage. So before you plan, you think about how should I learn, what is the task, what is my resources, etc. During, uh, you monitor yourself, meaning you take a step back every now and then and you try to say, am I doing things in a good way? And then after learning... You do a quick evaluation where you ask yourself, okay, what went well about this session? What went not so well? What can I do
0: better next time? I guess I, I see the strategy. Maybe I'll just focus on the monitoring. Like, let's say I see I'm not doing it right. Like, what are some things that typically the tool for someone who is like, I'm taking notes, but it's not working? Is it, is it as simple as like, maybe I'll try not taking notes because I find that I'm not listening anymore? Or is it something like that when you're monitoring? Yeah, so that's a good example. So if you were taking notes and you did take that step back and you realized, okay, I'm
3: struggling to understand what the lecturer is saying, then an adjustment might be I'm, I'm, I'll stop taking notes or I'll take lighter, more keyword-based key notes. Um, or someone might be sitting and reading and then they take a step back and they realize that um, they can't really focus very well. There's too much noise in the background, so they go somewhere else where it's more quiet
0: that's great. And I, I do feel like there's this, yeah, all these things are like opening a door to a toolkit that, 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 is, that is bigger, obviously. And one of the things that this also reminds me um, to some of the work you do, Andrea, is like, if scientists make great discoveries in how people learn, it doesn't make much difference unless people are applying them where it matters in classrooms. Um, and so I wanted to, to have you share a little bit of the work you're doing, Andrea, encouraging bridges
2: between science and education. Yeah, I think one of the most difficult things is everybody has different demands in their, in their jobs, and um, it's really hard to take the time to meet in the middle, but I think it's important. There's a whole body of work. Um, there were six U.S. science of learning centers funded by the National Science Foundation that did a lot of work on just very basic, how do humans learn, how do animals learn, what are the basic principles of learning? and um, and the science of learning and how do we inform education with that. And so when those sort of um, went their ways or ended their National Science Foundation funding, a group of us decided to uh, start the Global Science of Learning Education Network because this was propagating around the world. And so the idea is um, to really elevate the level of knowledge about the science of learning around the globe and then um, try to create networks that actually reach into communities figure out what the communities need with respect to learning and try to inform that and um, right now we've just been sort of disseminating via seminars and things like that but we have some working groups um, that are international and uh, we also have uh, a group that just started that I'm very excited about that uh, Bob Weiss started on knowledge brokering. So really what is the pipeline? What is the process of getting knowledge back and forth between these sectors? Because it's very difficult and it's not like things are always going to be right. We need feedback loops so that we keep um, iterating and refining as Brewer, one of our advisors is sitting there engineering the, <laughs> engineering the knowledge and the experience and the pathway.
0: Yeah, it struck me as I researched this topic that if we're in a golden age of, of learning science, it would only come about really if there's this global science of learning network and other efforts um, to, to do something different structurally, right, to create new infrastructure to actually disseminate and make a culture of, of spreading learning science to educators, right? Right.
2: Yes, and I think what was important about this particular event is it was started by a lot of science scientists, but also um, with co-founders Bob Weiss, who's in policy, Dan Leeds, who's a philanthropist and in policy, and winston weight who are um, who is in the education sector, so that you're getting all the voices um, f- put forward as the leadership, and then we have this Wonderful advisory board that represents um, all the sectors and then our international partners around the world who helped to start it too, from China, from Brazil, um, from Australia, all over the world. Great.
0: Um, And I guess, are you optimistic that it's... I mean, how soon will we see the real vision from that come about, like this and other work, do you think?
2: It's hard to say um, because... The idea is uh, to create infrastructure and an organizational pipeline so that this can happen. And from there, it really depends um, how invested the world is in the vision of excellent education and the science of learning. Um, And whether we can put enough in place that we can convince people this is really a way to go and that that the world deserves better education um, and better options for children Uh, It's certainly, there's so much untapped potential because there are all these people that must be very good at many, many things who we really aren't even reaching um, with an adequate education. And I'm not saying what we view as education here in Western culture, but the education that they need and the ability to have the information and learning that everyone needs um, in our communities. So I think it's a very important opportunity.
0: I, I want to bring in a voice that we unfortunately logistically couldn't have in the room but probably should which is a student voice I'm gonna try I hope this works to play a clip um, if uh, if I can get our, our friends over there to help us out um, which is a short clip of a student from a collection of student voices um, that you can find online I'll tell you a little bit more in a minute let's try play this like short Usually clip when we, we do our homework in math class if a fair amount of the class doesn't understand it. Someone gets to write it on the board, and we go over it as a class with the teacher. The teacher is just there to, to see little mistakes or,
4: or pick who's talking so it doesn't get out of control, but uh, we usually figure out the problem on our own because there's people that did get it, and there's people that didn't, and the people that did get it could teach us the people that didn't get it
5: when I was first okay. starting out at this That'd, that'd be school. great.
0: Thank you so much. And um, actually, I'll get back to the source of that clip in a little bit, but just, I'm curious, Andrea, um, if you want to start about any money too, like one of the things that really strikes me is about that clip is that it is talking, I think, about, Um, techniques from learning science and that the students are learning themselves and going over the work. And that he says that the teacher is really there to just kind of keep everybody on task in a way and and referee and answer questions if people are stuck. But that's very different than a lot of the view we all close our mind and think of what a good teacher is. So could you talk a little bit about that disconnect?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... Barb has a lot of work on this also, but I mean, certainly... Oh, yeah. Okay. Barb, you're next. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so certainly there are many different ways to go about partnering with your students so that you can give them really the building blocks they need to solve the problems. So, I think a lot of emphasis should be not only on working the specific problems themselves, but what goes into those problems, because half the time when someone is is not able to do something it's because they miss something that's very basic Mm -hmm. and so sometimes it's important for the teacher to step back and understand where everyone's having their problems and scaffold their learning to that point going way back because you know I can tell you from my own experiences students don't necessarily want to go back to chapter two when they're on 10 and revisit some concepts and so how we interleave our learning really can be done skillfully by the by the teachers, so that they're always helping the students to um, gain the knowledge. So, this sort of, um, you know, here you go, learn it, and I'll help you if you have problems, may work with some students, but I mean, it's, it's not necessarily optimal. Sure. So, yeah, no, that's a good point. I,
0: I
1: think in the field of education, much as in all of society, there always tend to be these pendulum swings. And one of the pendulum swings was for thousands of years um remembering things was thought to be the only way you really learn things so it's lecture and then memorizing the lecture and then it came to be in the last 50 years or so lecture is it that's not the golden goal it, the goal should be conceptual understanding so then everything swung to conceptual understanding is key remembering things is not so important but I remember a student coming up to me once I'd just given a big stats test and he flunked it and he comes up and it's all redlined and he says um, I can't believe I flunked this test because I understood it when you said it in class (laughs) You know, we've gone so overboard on the idea that conceptual understanding is key that we've forgotten if you can't remember it, you still really don't understand it. So, uh, so, I think this idea of active learning, which has really taken the lead over the last 20, 30 years, is an important idea. And certainly we've seen a lot of it in engineering education. But at the same time, um, it's not enough. I mean, giving students stuff and saying figuring it out is just not, that, that's not going to be enough. And I even saw a paper recently in Science where they said we had students learning, it was all a complete active learning session. We had these little robots that assisted when the students needed anything, but it was all active learning. It's like, no, what's wrong with this picture? Of course it wasn't all active. You had a teacher. You were you were interleaving the teacher's advice with the students actively learning. This is a, an old concept from the 60s called direct instruction, where you intermix explicit instruction with the student actively learning. And this back and forth is really how people learn. I I think what we've done is thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Active learning, student-centered learning is the only thing important. Well, it is important, but, you know, teachers are really important, too. And even just the teachers standing there and giving a little guidance and making sure you go off, don't go off track, that's a big deal. It, it shouldn't be discounted. So uh, I'm just here to put a plug in for teachers as well
0: as students. Pro-teachers. <laughs> Olaf, do you want to jump in on this one at all in reaction to active learning or or the the student clip we heard well, what I can say is 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 this I think
3: Barb summed up nicely. We need both you need uh, good instructions, you need memory and understanding is also connected by the way, and I, I think sometimes in the um, Sometimes in the classroom, you can have very skillfully tasks where students are going off on their self and they're doing active learning. But I've also heard many examples of where the teacher you know, gives a problem, then no support, and then the students are left to figure things out on their own and they're frustrated and they don't get this, get the support and they don't have the self-efficacy to go about the task as well. And they would have benefited much more from... from um, you know, a skillful lecture with good explanations and um, and more classical instructions. So I think you, you need both.
0: I guess I'm not gonna be able to do one of those crossfire type things where it's like pro-lecture, anti-lecture. It, you're all pro-lecture and anti-lecture. It depa- you need a mix of, of instruction and um, active learning and doing. Precisely. Yes. <laughs> For the, for the podcast audience, they are nodding. The guests on stage are nodding and the audience is <laughs> nodding. After the break, how do you counter misinformation in learning science? Like when schools are sold a story about a teaching method that isn't really effective or scientific? Stay with us. For more than four decades, the ISTE conference has been recognized as one of the world's most influential education events. It's where educators and education leaders gather to engage in hands-on learning, share best practices, and hear from the brightest minds from the world of education and beyond. At ISTE Live 23, June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. From real-world lessons that empower students to groundbreaking ways to collaborate, to leading-edge edtech tools, you'll find out how to lead next-gen learning during hundreds of strategy-packed sessions. Rediscover your passion for teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. Then bring that joy back to your school. Register today at isticonference.org. I really want to ask this question. I've been covering this. It's been the air a lot, although I hope there's no groans and moans in the audience, but I want to ask about ChatGPT and AI um, because somehow since November, which is real recent, there has been this tool unleashed on the world um, called ChatGPT, which is an AI chatbot, which um, some people didn't even know what that was until very recently, but now people kind of know that it can answer a bunch of questions um, by typing in and have a dialogue with anybody um, for free online and students are finding that it'll also answer the questions that are asked on homework or essays and give back pretty good paragraphs that are different every time. um, so They're not detectable by by plagiarism detection. So um, this is a new thing that's out and I'm curious, all of you, Barb, I'll start with you, like what, I mean, I guess what... What does the learning science teach us about, um, you know, what, how worried slash hopeful to be about this era we're entering of of chatbots? Because obviously it's being built into other tools by, you know, from Bing, from Microsoft, from other tools. It's going to be even more than just this one chatbot. Zoom. It seems to be something we'll have to kind of reckon with as educators and and humans.
1: Oh, well, I I like it in that I use it to help me create multiple-choice questions. So even if only, like, 20 of the – I'll give it an essay. I'll say, generate multiple-choice questions. Most of them are silly. Uh, But some of them give me wacky ideas or interesting ideas. Sometimes I'll say, uh, create five multiple-choice questions with some humor – and uh, it will sometimes come up with some fun things. So you've um, given away
0: your formula as a teacher.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, this has only been in the last year and a half or so. Uh, and, but it, you know, most of the questions I still have to do, but it really does help me. I think the the thing that we just have to be careful with is, for example, um, you know, when they came out with, with cameras, that didn't say, "Oh, well, we don't need artists anymore." You know, it's just we have a different, you know, we still need artists. When we came out with calculators, suddenly there were a big group of educators saying, well, students don't need to learn how to, um, you know, do math anymore because they can just always look it up. Well, then that meant they didn't actually get the neural patterns of learning uh, in mathematics. And so they didn't, they couldn't do math as effectively. Our our daughter uh, had... Our younger daughter had uh, a ten years in cum math, just a twenty minutes of extra practice a day in math, and her a graduate advisor's son related to me that usually her grad her graduate advisor doesn't take on American raised students because they're they just don't have that easy fluency with math. But our daughter did but i so i think that the real bottom line that i want to get to is just because chat gpt is out there and it can write essays that does not mean we don't teach our children how to write good essays so don't be confused by the fact you know yes the big you know the computers advanced computers can do this but we need to be able to do it too it's just like could I speak Brazilian Portuguese if I always just used um, Google Translate? Of course not. I need to have certain patterns in my mind, in my brain, in order to
0: be an expert.
1: And we can't forget and just say everything can be done, you know, outside by computers.
0: Does anyone else want to say a word about our chatbot um, <laughs> overlords?
2: Sure, why not? Everyone has an opinion, (laughs) right? Please. (laughs) I mean, I think with most really good AI, um, that you need to keep the human in the loop. So I resonate with what Barb's saying. I think they're great tools if they're used appropriately. And um, one thing I was saying is that they're definitely generative. And something that people have time trouble with sometimes is generating. So... You know, you can sometimes look at something that's been written and react to it and then think of your own ideas more readily. Um, The biggest liability I see is how they're trained and what the training sets are. Um, You know, garbage in, garbage out. And there's a lot of uh, garbage out there. And so sometimes, you know, depending how they're used Maybe we're gonna need chat GPT psychologists, actually, to give chat GPT feedback that it's being dysfunctional. <laughs> you never know. <laughs>
0: That's fascinating. Okay, well, I, I, we're running low on time, but I wanted to get to questions. Did you wanna to go to the mic and ask your question in the front row here?
4: Sure. So, uh, I'm actually a student. Um, my question is that uh, how do we promote sustainable learning techniques that are scalable, right? And I, this stems from my personal experiences because sometimes, let's say, for example, I learn about the Pomodoro technique or I learn about some new learning technique, and it works for me for maybe a week. And then, you know, it starts to become a hassle or the tests, you know, I get through the test and I, I don't keep up this habit. But then, like, over time, you know, there's just this constant fatigue with all these different new learning techniques that I could be potentially exposed to. And then kind of related to that question is how far do you go with certain learning techniques before you're like, okay, this might not necessarily work for me. Earlier, you guys mentioned about how potentially, hey, you might want to take notes in the classes, but then sometimes, you know, the way that you take notes might be different, right? You need to make those adjustments. So when is it that, hey, I'm not familiar enough with this technique to, you know, push through and see its benefits versus, hey, this is just a technique that is not working for me. And so potentially tying this also into like the mental health component would also be very helpful.
0: There's a lot in there. Thank you so much. Does anyone want to be first in this? Um. I can go first. Great. Oh, so, uh, thank you for that
3: question. Um, lots to dig into. I think that um, building new habits is hard, and when you are trying out new techniques, it takes a lot of effort and, and thought, and uh, so it is a bit cumbersome. But hopefully, if you if you deliberately Uh, do that for an extended period of time, it will become part of your habit or skill set. And to some extent, you mentioned the Pomodoro technique, Um, if you you do that over a period of time, even if you stop using the clock, it might still be that you are better at quicker getting into the flow zone and then working intently before taking a, a break and that some of that transfers, even if you aren't using the actual clock or the actual tool, and it can be like that with other techniques uh, as well. So I think that it's important to be flexible and have a toolkit of different techniques. And you cannot change everything at, at once, but you can keep building your capability and, and adding on new habits and, and, and new skills slowly. And we should keep always improving, always uh, looking for better ways of, of
0: of learning and studying. Barb, do you want to go next?
1: Um, just I, I love the uh, motivational speaker Zig Ziglar, and he said something once to the effect of, uh, "You know, you can't just take a bath once and expect to be clean the rest of your life. You have to like, you know, keep rebathing." <laughs> and in some sense, what you're doing right here coming in, getting new ideas, getting repetition of some ideas you may already be familiar with, and just getting motivation and continued and refreshed motivation, I think, can help keep you on track. Because sure, you're going to maybe forget to start using the the Pomodoro technique. But when you hear it here use that pomodoro technique it's really valuable it reminds you to keep using these techniques so uh listen to the ed surge podcast and that
6: will help
0: you (laughs) (laughs) you heard it here first the scientists are
2: telling us to listen
0: to this podcast
2: i think motivation is the holy grail though Mm -hmm. it's very difficult there's so many competing demands on our time and there's so many exciting things out there in the world that we have access to. So, you know, that's a, it's a rough one. And, and I don't think that we understand really well um, how people can always remain motivated. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. for your question. Great. And uh, if you don't mind
6: introducing yourself. Sure. I'm, I'm Ror Saxberg. Um, I'm the founder of a learning engineering consultancy called Learning Forge. Um, I wanted to go back to this issue of fluencies, which I think is misunderstood and important. So work from the 1960s by cognitive scientists found that something on the order of 70 or 80% of what top performers decide and do is no longer verbally accessible to them because it's all buried in long-term memory. Now, combine that with issues of technology change. I, I trained to be fluent on a slide rule in high school. I don't use a slide rule anymore, right? So... You know, this issue of fluencies, we have to actually unpack what do top performers need to be able to decide and do, and then design instruction in order to bring that in to students and to get them to work. Well, but so whose responsibility is it to actually keep track of what are the fluencies and how they evolve uh, among top performers, and how do we bring that back into uh, teacher preparation programs and other things? I'd love to see if you guys have any thoughts on that.
1: There's some wonderful research uh, that shows the vital importance of fluency, for example, in learning multiplication tables and in being rapidly, you know, able to recollect and handle and manipulate numbers and so forth. And even for you, learning this slide rule, you may think, well, so why would I learn, that's obsolete. But the ideas behind the slide rule are not obsolete, And in a similar fashion, in Japan, there's a technique called flash-anzan. What is it called again? Flash-anzan. And what they do in this technique is they use an abacus to teach kids to add. But then they um, kind of take away the abacus, and they allow the kids to drum on a table. And then they ask them to kind of gradually move, so they only do it in their mind. And these kids can add numbers while doing word games. And it's, I mean, it's just that they see the patterns of numbers so easily just because it's in that, a lot of that unconscious uh, knowledge is embedded within the procedural system, which we don't have conscious access to, but which fuels our intuition.
6: But just to be clear... A lot of top-performing experts like infectious disease experts or, uh, you know, people who make uh, complex policy decisions uh, or, you know, uh, th- 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 there's, there's more than just numerical fluency. Oh, there's yes. things like instantly recognizing which disease this patient has, and then it's actually harder to unreal, why did I decide that? And so it's not, it's not just... You know, numerical fluency and things like that. There are these big schemas that experts have. So, who's going to unpack that? Who's going to monitor those and then bring them back into the training environments so that the next generation can focus on gaining the right fluencies for that? That was kind of my question.
1: Right. I think it's a good question, but let me just. We often skip the basics. We're like, oh, we don't need to have phonics to teach kids to read. And what happens is ultimately a disaster. So I'm trying to ensure that we don't skip the basics. But it is absolutely clear that to be an expert in, you know, I mean, everything from um, Simon's work with chess expertise, you need to have enormous bodies of of knowledge and facts right there in long-term memory. And uh, who evaluates that? Well, in neuroscience, it's wonderful. People like Andrea and uh, her colleague, Terry Sanowski. And so we're really, really lucky to have these experts guiding us.
2: Yeah, I think um, in our center, actually, we had a whole network studying perceptual expertise and how you gain fluency over time. Very fascinating um, because things really do aggregate and become habitual. But um, dealing with that knowledge and deconstructing it is, is actually pretty difficult. So experts miss things also. And um, how to get experts to sort of retune their processing of an image, say, if you're talking about radiology after they've seen one thing and keep it from blocking another thing. I mean, that is where machines are coming in in interesting ways because they can highlight something for an expert and they can go back and deconstruct their process. So it is interesting how to interface um, that which we have access to and that which we don't because there, there are ways to dig back into the expertise, but um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting thing. I think we have to remember that all these types of processing are happening in parallel and so, it also takes expertise to try to backtrack on your processing. And so, just teaching people how to um, understand those own their own parallel streams and ask themselves different types of questions. For example, in very simple form, you know, if you're looking at implicit versus explicit memory, it's really the query that gets you there. So, if you can't remember where you put your keys, you know, explicitly you just can't remember, right? But if you say, oh, where should some keys be? You know, That's a different kind of question that allows you to access a completely different reservoir of knowledge that is processed um, you know, in different structures. These things don't occur in, in serial, they occur in parallel. It's just
0: like what
2: Olaf was saying with metacognition.
0: I know. I love this. I love so much about this, and I I wanted to keep it going because, in some ways, well, a like that's why we always ask, like, where did you last put your keys? To the to the key question, because nobody else but that person knows uh, the actual answer of like where are the keys? I suppose, but I also think this was a very expert asked question, because Sachsberg is somebody who's a learning engineer himself, and so thank you for the question and and for this exchange. I appreciate it. Let's get to another question and try to get to a few more before we run out of time.
4: Hello. My name is Eduardo. Uh, I'm the chairman of a uh, foundation in Brazil that uh, focuses on teachers. Welcome. And my question is exactly about that. A little bit on a follow-up from the active learning versus lecture, uh, let's say, debate. (laughs) <laughs> uh, looking forward, you know, if you think, you know, 50, 100 years from today, where AIs and other tools will be taking a lot of professions uh, into oblivion or into obsolescence, what would be the teacher for the future? You know, cognitively, what are the roles really that absolutely necessary to have a human being doing?
0: That's a great question. So what is a teacher in this world? Like a neuroscientist. <laughs> I, I do That's think... a lot of learning we have to do. Go well,
1: ahead. No, but the basics, the foundations of from neuroscience, they're not hard. I mean, we teach them in learning how to learn in like, you know, a few videos. If you start using metaphor... Uh, and then, build on these metaphorical ideas, you can actually go very deep in understanding synaptic processes, working memory, and all sorts of things. I mean Olaf Olaf has done a great uh, course, and you should see some of the visuals. you can go really far and so um, I think that we should be uh, that schools of education should have a neuroscience division, and that all teachers should have a fundamental understanding of what's going on in students' brains. And I think that's what Olof is working for uh, in his own research.
0: So we should get rid of this metaphor, cliche of it's not brain surgery or whatever. It's like we can all understand, maybe not the surgery, but the brain, you know, neuroscience is not a scary thing that can't be understood, I suppose. Bingo. Although don't operate on my brain, but anyway. <laughs>
2: yeah. I think the hardest thing, though, is that we're, we're continuing to change. So our brains co-evolve with our culture. So if you change the culture, you change the brain. Uh, the brain pu- functions in different proportionality, in different settings, in different contexts. So whether you're going to favor your habitual behavior or your focused, thoughtful behavior changes. And, and structurally, our brains you know, change over time as we introduce new tools, new techniques, etc. So it's really hard to predict with humans developing... AI, they're, it's, they're, predict, they're developing it for people as they know them right now, and then people will, will continue to evolve to that. So I would think that people should always be a little ahead of the loop and need to be involved in mitigating um, how AI is used and working. and, and One would hope that, um, you know, the science is still right, that relationships are one of the most important things that we can have with each other and with students. And that takes a very human capacity um, to interleave and and connect. And so I think, you know, connections are still very important.
0: Thank you. Um, Let's get to another question.
5: Um, Hi, I'm Roberta. And with my daughter, uh, we run a project in which we try to help families get involved with their children, uh, education and learning. And our... Uh, yeah, we are from Brazil. Our project is called SOS Educação. And uh, my question is, um, now that we have all this knowledge on neuroscience and learning, how does the role of the parents and the family, uh, how does it change? If we compare to how our parents used to act or to... Uh, just help us learn? I mean, I think that we, when we were younger, our parents just made, made sure we were going to school and they, they thought, okay, this is what I have to do. But nowadays, nowadays, it seems it's much more complex. So do you think that parents' role has also changed or needs to change according to all this knowledge we have now on how the brain learns?
0: That's such an interesting question. So in other words, they're the teachers, but everybody learns from their parents, of course, as well. So how can, what is the teacher's role, and the parent's role ch- differ?
3: Well, I'll, I think that learning happens all the time. It doesn't only happen in the classroom or in the school, but it happens in the Playground in the football field, it happens in the family home, and there are lots of things that parents can do to support their students' learning. We know, for example, that uh, uh, dopamine plays an important role in learning and curiosity, and I think parents can foster that curiosity through interesting and stimulating discussions. You know, what did you learn about, and what was interesting with that, and help. Raise questions that makes the kid further interested in going deeper into the material. Um, We also know that for learning, self-efficacy is very important—the belief in yourself and that you can. Uh, overcome difficulties in your learning and I think when students are coming home and they struggle and they're falling a bit behind the parents play a crucial role in being that motivator and giving the kids the belief that they can can overcome these hurdles that they have so I don't necessarily think the role of the parents have changed but I think it's a crucial role and we're starting to understand uh, more and more how the parents can support their children. That's great.
2: Yeah, I, I want to add to that, too, because I think that um, one of the most important things for an individual to be able to self-regulate, to learn different types of information, is their sense of safety and um, their feelings of belongingness. And... Developing a firm sense of safety is one of the primary things that parents can always offer, and so that children always have a place where they feel safe, and even if school is not that safe place for them, they return somewhere where they can regulate, they can feel safe.
0: Okay, we have three people at the mic, and we're just, let's try to get through those in the last last few minutes here, but then I think that'll be the end of those if we can get to them, so try to speed round here.
7: Sure. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for your insights today. I'm asking my uh, question from like a communications and advocacy perspective. How do we as an education sector try to combat the unintentional spread of misinformation when it comes to learning science? So as a case study, you know, we saw over the last three to four decades, the reading wars, and it was an unfortunate reality of good intentioned, Academics wanting to bring viable resources and um, access to pedagogy to teachers who desperately wanted to teach their students how to read, and what we saw is the unfortunate diverger between or divergence between, you know, the the two camps—the the balanced literacy science of reading—and an unfortunate unintended mis-spread of, uh, spread of misinformation. So what do you all think that we can do as an education sector to make sure that the truly factually based, statistically relevant, and thoroughly analyzed learning science is brought to the forefront across core curriculum, supplemental curriculum, et cetera?
0: Yeah, how do we avoid that, yeah, the, if people are, are really aware of this debate about Reading, but there's other aspects too. So how do you keep the misinformation out of of this advice um, arena for teachers and training?
2: I think it's a problem with every career right now, actually. Hmm. And I think that's why people don't trust science anymore when science is so very important. Anytime you have information, you have misinformation, and then you have unintended overgeneralization of knowledge. And so I think part of it has to do with... um, teachers becoming educated enough in these sciences that they're interested in to become fluent, to have conversations. There has to be a back and forth so that the information can be um, understood on both sides because if you don't understand the needs of the students in a particular setting, then you really can't translate your science there either. So there's the overgeneralization of science problem. So I really think as a community, we need to have people that work in between the scientific community and the education community so that we build a pipeline too of communication. And it's sort of, it's sort of missing um, that in between, You know, there's educational sciences, but really, it's not in touch with some of the other sciences. It's all of our responsibility,
0: actually. Hmm. Do you, would it be safe to say and I, I that some of the, the whole sold-a-story, that podcast that talked about this um, debate we're all talking about right now and reading, was partly engendered because there wasn't the kind of infrastructure that you've been talking about about that would have put a check on that faster?
2: Yeah, I think so. You know, I think everybody belongs in the conversation, it's, and it's... All of our responsibility, and um, and we don't really have infrastructure for that explicitly. Um, There's to have that, I have these all these ideas vetted, etc.
0: I have all these questions about why and how we got here, but that'd be another another episode. We'll come back to it. <laughs> um, I I can sense other people want to talk, but let's try to get to our last couple of questions. They've already given me a five minute warning.
7: Hi, um, my name is Dr. Nikki Sweeney. I'm a lecturer at the Australian National University. Um, This is a bit of a practical question, but you talked a lot about the individuality of the brain and different ways of learning. I understand the importance of knowing each of my students, but my class has 200 in it. So I wonder if you have maybe two or three practical suggestions about what we can encourage students to do so that they understand how their brains work and they can start to assess what is my way of learning so that we can support them rather than us having a one-on-one conversation with every single individual.
0: That's a great question. The practical, I have 200 students, how do I do this, um, really? Do you want to, Olav, do you want to take this one as the metacognition expert? Uh,
3: yes, yeah, so I think when it comes to understanding our, 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 ourselves, you don't have to sit down with each student individually, but you can have activities in the classroom that prompt that sort of reflection. And so, for example, uh, you give student a task and then you ask them to work on it and afterwards they can sit in pairs or they can sit in small groups and reflect on how well it went and what they did and why they might have differing outcomes. So a lot of especially these metacognition reflective uh, questions are the, the outcome is enhanced when students can discuss their own thinking with other students and then compare. So for a lot of that understanding how we learn and what works, you can have students discuss
0: that with one another. All right, I, we are really almost at time, but I want to at least get your question on the record here. You've been so patient in the end thank of the line. Thank you.
7: Um, firstly, I just want to say thank you. I did my doctorate with Mark McDaniel and Roddy Rodiger, so this feels like coming home. This was very lovely. Um, but I've been in industry for a few years now, and the biggest thing that I face is just a misunderstanding of the effect size of a lot of these sort of um, techniques that we talk about in metacognition. The idea that a single single session of retrieval practice can just fix a whole lot of problems. And so how do you, what is your advice for navigating those conversations, especially with people in industry that might not understand that repeated practice is really the way to go?
0: Barb, I'm going to say you can do the fastest answer at this.
7: (laughs) Uh,
1: Scare them. (laughs) really you'll learn better if you realize that there's a lot of competition out there you want to retain you want to grow in your job because that's how you're going to keep your job and grow to the next
0: best job okay thank you (laughs) scare them well i really learned a lot and this was challenging and fascinating. And I hope everybody else did too. And I think there's lots of more to learn. And that's another exciting thing um, about this topic. Um, so they helped me um, thank our panel. And thank you all for being here. But This has been the EdSearch podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one to ignite your curiosity about education. If you like the show, please follow the EdSurge Podcast wherever you listen: Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or some new podcast app I have not even heard of. And tell a friend about the EdSurge Podcast on social media, or better yet, recommend us to your podcast club. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at JRYoung or on the web at JeffYoung.net. Special thanks to our guests this episode who flew in from far away to be part of this live event. And thanks to South by Southwest EDU for hosting us as part of their podcast stage. The student voice that I played was from an online collection published by the nonprofit What Kids Can Do. You can find that at wkcd.org. Music this episode by Roman Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning.
6: Thanks for listening.